Let's read uh, God's word together. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, moving on to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the words have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. 
and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Our Father, as we meet together scattered across the city and beyond, we do pray that you would work by your Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts. You know those of us who are in need of encouragement or in need of challenge or in need of reassurance. And Father, we do pray that you would uh, open our ears and our hearts to hear your voice now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by uh, mentioning one of the reasons that some people find Christianity hard to believe. It's something that, that can be called sometimes the, the scandal of particularity. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the idea that the entire hope of the human race the entire eternity of every single human being listening to this talk, whether on Zoom or YouTube, the entire salvation plan of the creator of the universe all rests on one particular Jewish man who was born on a, as a baby in one particular animal feeding trough, in one stable, in one town, in one tiny nation of the world in one year. Out of all the millennia of human existence, out of all the cultures and languages and tribes and races on the earth, are you really asking me to believe that the hope for every single human being rests on hearing about this man, Jesus? That personally, our eternity rests on what we make of Jesus. The scandal of particularity. C.S. Lewis, a while back, wrote an interesting book on miracles, and he, he listed some of that stuff and, and said that modern people don't really like that idea. And I think it's even more true in postmodernity. The idea that God would have chosen to work through a particular nation, a chosen nation, Israel, at a particular time of history that he chooses through one particular saviour and that that provides the only viable way to get right with God. It is something we often struggle to accept. Even as Christians, we can feel a bit uncomfortable about talking about it. I think sometimes we have the question, kind of, how can one person's life so far away, so long ago, really affect me, be relevant to me? But actually, this morning, as we sit stuck in our homes because of one tiny virus, presumably from one original human carrier. Actually, we've got a stark illustration that in this world, a single event at a certain place and time can actually affect everyone, can be relevant to everyone. We don't yet know who the first human carrier of COVID-19 was, but I can tell you they were relevant. They've had a massive effect on the entire human race. And the reason Luke bothered to write his account of Jesus his birth, life, death, resurrection, is because he's convinced what happened with Jesus is more significant than the origins of COVID-19. And so I want to appeal to us this morning, let's not be prejudiced by the scandal of particularity. Let's not think just because it's somewhere else a long time ago, it's got nothing to do with me. Luke would say, well, let me lay out the facts and see what you make of them. 
We saw last week, uh, and it was in our reading again today in verse 4, that Luke is writing to give a certainty, both to inquirers just looking in to, to see if this good news about Jesus is actually reliable hope, true news. And for Christians, people like Theophilus, uh, whom he's writing to in verse 3, uh, who has been taught about Jesus, probably a believer, but needs certainty if he's going to shape his life around it. Even as we think of some of that stuff Robin was talking about in terms of the, the vision update, the 2030 vision, we do need to be sure this stuff is true if we're all going to um, uh, go through costly uh, uh, things to spread the gospel, to, to reach out with this good news. Well, Luke has good news for us, and he wants us to be certain of it. That's, that's a reminder just of his aim from last week. Um, but the striking thing is, we, as we begin our passage today, we're starting from verse 5 onwards, really. Um, as, we give, as we begin our passage, uh, the striking thing is which episode Luke chooses to record as his very first um, part of the narrative. He, he said last week that he's, he's doing an orderly narrative. He's thought carefully about the compilation, what comes first. And the striking thing in our passage from five onwards is that Jesus doesn't actually appear and nor do his parents. I wonder if you noticed that. The drama is starting further back with this guy Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. She's a relative of Mary, an older relative of her. Um, But there are clues in their lives that something big is about to happen. We're going to notice three things in our story. You'll see it on the outline, which is on the server sheet. You can access that, the link below the video. We're going to notice three things. The first is this. This is a kind of introductory setting that rings a lot of Bible bells. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, their life story is an introductory setting that should be ringing Bible bells in our heads. Why do I say that? Well, because some of the biggest moments in the history of God's people so far in the Bible begin with a barren couple, an aging couple who don't have children. So back in Genesis 12 to 17, when God first makes his huge promises to to bless the world through the family of Abraham, the striking thing about the story is a real irony in the story because he's promising Abraham all these descendants. He's saying one day you'll have an international family, talking about the church. You'll have this international family But actually, he's promised someone who can't even have one child. And in Abraham and Sarah's case, we're now elderly. Likewise, if you were around in Chalmers last year for our series in 1 Samuel, where God begins to introduce the plan for a king to lead his people, well, the whole narrative begins with who? Hannah and her sorrowful prayers. Again, a childless woman longing for a child. And here we are again, Zechariah and Elizabeth longing for a child. It is one of God's hallmark signs of a major intervention in human history. Abraham Sarah was where he marked which nation you would find his blessing through. Uh, with Hannah began the story of the king through whom his blessing would come. And now, again, a supernatural birth 
an extraordinary, miraculous intervention to mark that something big is about to happen. Actually, just before we move on from that point, I want to say I don't think this is just an arbitrary sign that that God shows. It's not just kind of a a miraculous trick he does to, to know it's him doing something. I think choosing this particular situation in all its tragedy, in all its pain, is a real sign that it's not just God's doing something. He's doing something to bring hope where there's hopelessness to bring life to a world full of decay and death. That was really clear in Genesis, uh, part of the curse of a fallen world, as well as work being frustrating, uh, is, is that childbirth, that great blessing, is full of pain and difficulty. Indeed, many people suffer the real grief of not being able to have children. Now, this passage isn't here to give you a kind of two- or three-step plan. You know, if, as sometimes people callously do, say, verse 6, if, you, if you're just righteous and blameless and you pray enough, well, God will definitely give you a child. I remember people saying well-meaning encouragements to, to us when we were struggling with childlessness, and it doesn't help because it's not true. That's not why this story is here. It's not a kind of three-step plan to having a child, But it is God marking that he is going to do something about a world of decay, a world of pain, a world where there is much hopelessness often. He is going to turn a fallen world into a salvation plan, a plan of blessing. And actually that turnaround in in Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives is just the foretaste of the big turnaround that's about to happen with Jesus. So that's our first thing to notice. Uh, this, is, um, this is God uh, ringing some Bible bells, showing that he's about to fulfill his long-promised salvation plan. And I hope that's an encouragement just at the moment. I think we all need some hope as we head into 2021. We all need some good news and some real good news, like certain good news. Um, I'm a bit tired of, of um, hopes that get deferred and postponed. You know, maybe the end of the year was going to be the turn. Uh, maybe the vaccines would solve things and then there's a new variant. And yes, hopefully the vaccines will solve that, but it's all going to take time. There's so much uncertainty in the hope of the world. But actually, here in Luke, we have a certain plan. God's long-promised salvation that you can rely on. The God who can bring life out of death, existence out of nothing, hope to the hopeless. That's why, do you remember verse 1 of Luke's gospel? That's why Luke uses the word accomplished to describe what's been happening. His, his history isn't just stuff that happened. It's, it's promises that have been fulfilled, plans of God that have now come to fruition, a rescue that was long awaited and has now happened. But just before you think, hang on, hang on, that's a lot to get out of just one, child, one couple not having a child, and then by verse 24, verse 25, they have a child. That's an awful lot to read into that. 
And it is a bit subtle. It relies on you knowing some of the Bible beforehand. You need to know Genesis. You need to know 1 Samuel. I mean, couldn't God have made this all a bit more obvious if he's really announcing the salvation of the world? Sometimes that is why people have problems with the scandal of particularity. It's often put like this. uh, If God wrote me a message in the clouds right now, or if he sent me an angel right in front of me, or, or did a miracle in front of my eyes, well, maybe then I'd believe. But you want me to believe it all happened back then and there in some tiny backwater of Judea in some unimportant family from nowhere special. I mean, it barely made a splash on the imperial histories of the day. Couldn't have God made it more obvious if this is really something major that everyone needs to know? Actually, 2,000 years later, it turns out Jesus did make quite a splash, even if the Romans didn't notice. And it's actually uh, the desire for a more obvious supernatural sign that brings us to our second point. Because in verses 8 to 17, God does make it increasingly hard to miss that something extraordinary is happening. Just read with me from verse 8. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was a great privilege. I didn't realize this, but this, this choosing by lot, there were approximately 18,000 priests. So, so you just get one shot usually in a lifetime. This is kind of Zechariah's one time to go in to the holy place and, and offer incense. And verse 10, everyone else is outside praying, the whole multitude of the people praying outside at the hour of incense. Um, interestingly, that means that um, Zechariah is the person uh, who witnesses the angel that's about to appear But there is a whole crowd outside who witnessed the effect, as we'll see, the effect on him uh, to make him deaf and dumb. Let's read on. Verse 11, uh, Zechariah uh, goes in to offer the incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. We're going to learn later this angel is Gabriel. He's one of the few named angels in Scripture. He's clearly a mighty being. Zechariah has the typical reaction of any normal person experiencing an angelic visit in the Bible. Verse 12, he was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. At that point, we hear what the angel has come to announce. As I read, just listen out to the wider significance of their particular family news. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. So far, so good news for them. But listen on. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, angels don't often visibly turn up. Um, That's true in everyday existence. It's also true in the Bible. Even in the edited highlights of God's mighty works, angels don't turn up on every page. Uh, And this is clearly a huge moment. 
And it's huge, not just because Gabriel is intervening in, in Elizabeth and Zechariah's personal tragedy. That is being undone as they promised a child here. But something much bigger is happening through that because the tragedy of their nation is going to be put right. Indeed, the tragedy of the world is going to be put right. A world at odds with its maker. A world suffering under decay. You see, God's long-promised plan to rescue people from all nations through Abraham's family, it's about to kind of burst into action. And so, verse 13, many will rejoice at his birth. And he'll be set aside with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And he will turn people's hearts to the Lord to get ready for the Lord. Again, Bible bells are ringing here. Actually, one particular Bible bell is being rung. You see, Gabriel's been given words to say that are straight out of God's promises in Malachi and Isaiah. Um, Both of those prophets had spoken of the day when the Lord himself would turn up to his people personally. Malachi and Isaiah said, you're not going to miss that moment because God will make it obvious by sending a messenger ahead of him. The messenger will be like Elijah. He'll be someone who can prepare the way for the Lord's arrival. Someone who who tells the people to turn around so they're facing in the right direction when the Lord turns up. This is an absolutely huge deal. To get our heads around that, I think it's helpful to remember that Malachi was the last prophet. That's why he's at the end of our Old Testament uh, arrangement in, in our English Bibles There's been 400 years of silence since the words, I will send my messenger ahead of you. The one like Elijah. And now suddenly Gabriel turns up to say to this couple, actually not only are you going to have a child, but your child will be the messenger. That is, they're going to have none other than John the Baptist, a person who Jesus ends up describing as the greatest of humans, that the last of the prophets, the one who most closely got to point to Jesus and declare, this is the one. I think it is hard for us to kind of get our heads around what a huge moment it is. A sudden supernatural angel appearance is, is pretty big. It being Gabriel is even bigger, and he's the one who in the next episode is entrusted to announce the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary, like He's a big messenger. Actually, that content of the message is even more extraordinary. Gabriel starts his announcements saying in verse 13 that Zechariah's prayer has been answered. It's interesting in the commentaries. There's debates about what was Zechariah praying for. Is he saying you were praying for a child and here it is? Or was he praying like lots of the priests would be for God to rescue Israel? They're currently stuck under occupation. They're effectively still in exile spiritually. Things are not right with the maker of uh, the nation and the maker of the world. Were they praying for hope in a dark world? Certainly everyone outside praying at this moment was praying for that. But the point is, God is solving both problems at once. The joy of that baby to that family is a sign of the hope there is for this nation and the hope there is for this world So significant is the coming of Jesus Christ that Gabriel, on his own, was not enough to announce it. Gabriel had to announce John the Baptist, 
who would announce Jesus. That is to say that the message uh, announcing that Jesus would be the one didn't just come from an angelic vision inside the temple, but came from a public human preacher in John the Baptist, a famous preacher in the wilderness, the one who Isaiah 40 announces would be a voice in the desert announcing the arrival of God to comfort his people. It is an absolutely huge moment coming. God is ensuring we can't miss it. Sometimes think when we say, well, God, why don't you write your name in the clouds or why don't you do a a kind of miracle in front of my eyes? One response would be, who do you think you are (laughs) to tell God what to do, your maker, the one we've rejected? That's one way of responding like that. But actually, God is so gracious, he does provide extraordinary evidence, multiple evidence Not just one angelic visitation to Zechariah, but two by the time we get to Mary next week. Uh, Not just one miraculous birth with Elizabeth, but two when we get to Mary and the virgin birth, an even bigger thing. Um, Not just Jesus turning up, but John the Baptist just before. And not out of nowhere. That's something he's been promising for 700 years, Isaiah. 400 years, Malachi. And now here, a few days before, Gabriel. God in his kindness provides plenty of testimony and witness and evidence. Here he breaks the silence. He opens the floodgates of of news because blessing is about to arrive. I know it can all feel a long way away, especially when we're under pressure, especially when there's so many practical and urgent things on our minds. But let me put it like this. If you are excited about the day when finally one of the government briefings says, do you know what? The vaccines now have enough coverage of the population that we can start to release you from your homes. If you long for that day, as I do, Luke would say this is a bigger day, a bigger announcement. It was waited for longer. It was needed uh, by everyone globally, and it's eternally significant. The Lord's about to appear and save his people. So I think if you are inquiring about Christian things, the one thing you can't really say is that God didn't go out of his way to make it clear this was the plan, that Jesus was the one. And we're going to see more and more of that as we read through these these episodes in Jesus' early life. Um, As Robin said, it will feel a bit weird in January and February hearing about shepherds and angels and mangers and Mary. Um, But actually, it's really good for us because because Luke isn't writing a kind of uh, an account to make us feel cozy and warm in December. He's writing an account to make us feel certain and sure in January and onwards. And actually, given all of that, given the Old Testament background, given the miraculous appearance of Gabriel, all of that means how Zechariah responds is really poor. That's our third thing to notice, uh, how not to respond to the gospel as modeled by Zechariah. Just look at um, verse 18. Now, Zechariah was a priest of God, so he would have known 
all the stories about Abraham and Sarah. He would have known the story of Hannah. He would have known the promises in Isaiah and Malachi. But look how he responds in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Do you not remember how the Bible starts, Zechariah? Do you not remember that God has shown his ability to do the impossible, to bring life out of death, to bring blessing out of curse? And Zechariah isn't asking that question in a spirit of kind of faith, of humble wonder. Uh, Mary asks a similar question down in verse 34 next time, uh, and she is asking in that kind of um, faith, uh, faith tone and attitude. But Zechariah is doubting this is true. He, he just doesn't believe it. Gabriel will tell us that in a moment. He thinks this is just impossible. He rules out the possibility. You can see that's what Zechariah is saying and doing from Gabriel's response. It's actually one of my favorite angelic lines in the whole Bible. Gabriel basically says, do you know who I am? Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. There's Zechariah's problem. You did not believe my words. You did not believe this good news that will certainly be fulfilled. All of that language is a really striking preview of what Jesus says to his disciples at the end of the book when he says after the resurrection, how slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Really striking that. There's, Luke's put this echo at the start of the book and the end of the book to show us that Zechariah's reaction here is not just being recorded because that's what happened. I mean, it is what happened. But the reason Luke's put it in here, in chapter 1, is to demonstrate there is a wrong response to this message. He's trying to warn us that when you hear the good news of Jesus, in all its extraordinary particularity, all its unashamedly supernatural uniqueness, there is a wrong way to respond as well as a right way. We're going to see the right way next week with Mary. Um, just flick on if you've got a Bible to verse 37, uh, the exact opposite response uh, to Zechariah. Verse 37, Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's the right response. But Zechariah is modeling the wrong reaction to the gospel. And it is the gospel, it is the good news message he's responding to. I wonder if you notice that. In verse 19, Gabriel uses that phrase. He says, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That is the gospel word, good news, evangel. 
So in other words, Gabriel is the first evangelist in Luke-Acts. And Zechariah is the first unbelieving reaction to an evangelist, to the good news gospel. That is, God's own priest thought this message was too good to believe, too extraordinary to believe. As we read on in Luke-Acts, we'll see a lot more of that reaction. You'll remember that from when we were in Acts. As the gospel goes out from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, there are other people who will follow in Zechariah's footsteps. I think the warning to us as readers, to Theophilus, is to say when you receive the good news, the gospel, from a messenger sent by God in fulfillment of both the patterns of the Old Testament and the promises of the Old Testament, don't be unbelieving. There is plenty of evidence to believe. We're going to see that as Luke lays it out. But right up front, he wants to say there is a wrong way to respond. And and we are culpable for it because it's so clear. Let's just look at the the, um, culpability of Zechariah, what what ends up happening to him. Um, So verse 20, Gabriel says to him, behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. That's worth saying, this muteness, it was probably deaf and dumbness, as in he couldn't speak and probably he couldn't hear. Because later in verse 62, they have, when they ask Zechariah what to name the child, they have to make signs to him. So it sounds like he can't hear them, and he has to answer his, write his answer on a tablet. He can't speak. So he's struck deaf and dumb until the birth of John the Baptist. Why is that? And why are we being told it? One answer is just simply that unbelief does have consequences. Zechariah should have known better from the scriptures he knew well and from the fact the angel Gabriel was standing next to him. And that is a warning that comes across to us. Because as we read on in Luke, we're going to see that someone greater than Gabriel has arrived from the right hand of God to bring us good news. That is, the Lord Jesus himself is stepping into this world the one who really can say, don't you know who I am? So whatever you do, don't reject the good news from him, the way Zechariah rejected Gabriel's message. But actually, I think Zechariah's muteness isn't just there to kind of scare us or warn us. Because actually, it's quite a limited judgment. It's just a temporary silencing until John is born. Some of that is God being gracious to this man. But I wonder if there's something else of significance going on. It's really striking. Zechariah is hugely privileged. On that great day when he got to go into the temple and actually offer incense, he has the privilege of being the first person to hear this gospel, this good news that the Lord was about to come and save his people. The first hearer. And the irony is... He can't tell anyone. Not until John's birth. 
For nine months, he has to think about the last thing his ears heard, which was Gabriel's gospel words, and realize he can't share them with his friends and family. Listen to this. His unbelief in the message robbed him of the opportunity to share it. I'll say that again because I think it's important in Luke Acts. His unbelief in this message robbed him of the opportunity to share it in all its joy. Again, it's so striking. Luke put that in chapter one of his gospel, knowing that Acts would be coming as a sequel. See, by the end of the gospel and the start of Acts, it's very clear that this is a gospel not just to believe in, to receive, but something to share, to pass on. First, the apostles are to do that, and then all of us Christians as a church. It's partly why we have a 2030 vision. It's why we're not just kind of hunkering down and bunkering down to just survive as a church for the next decade. We want to grow. We want to share with the wider world this good news, even if it costs ourselves. Because this good news is to go out. But the irony is that this priest whose whole life was probably building up to the moment he got to go into the holy place, the tent of meeting, and offer the incense. And at that moment, he he had Gabriel appear to him to share this amazing gospel news, and he didn't become the second evangelist in Luke. He didn't become the next in the chain of good news sharing because he just didn't believe it. He didn't have certainty. So just before we close, who do you think does get the privileged role of being the next person to announce that Jesus is coming on the scene? Well, if you've got a Bible, just look across to verse 39. Very briefly, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, no greeting from him, he's mute, and greeted Elizabeth. And when when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So the first evangelist was Gabriel. The second The still unborn John the Baptist, that's Zechariah's son, kicking cartwheels in the womb. The the third, sorry, Elizabeth, his wife. Zechariah still silent because he didn't believe. This has been challenging to me just as a Christian believer. I've been asking myself, how are my levels of belief in the good news of Jesus at the start of this year? How is my certainty Because if unbelief starts to creep in, it won't be long before I go silent. The church in Acts goes out to the nations and their neighbours because they're sure that this Jesus, this one Jewish man born in a particular place and time, is indeed the Lord and Saviour and judge of every single human being. He is the only name by which people can be saved. How certain am I of that? How certain are we of that? If we're not, I think it would be a great thing 
to take some time out during lockdown to read through Luke and pray for that certainty to grow. It is written for exactly that purpose. And as a final encouragement, if if that challenge feels daunting, if you feel like, well, I want to be certain, but I just feel so weak, well, let me just ask one more question about the text. How was it that when an experienced and trained priest in Zechariah completely failed to witness to God's salvation because he didn't believe it, but an unborn baby managed to and his aging wife managed to, how was it? How did that happen? Well, just look at verse 41, if you've still got it open in front of you. Verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry. Or look back to verse 15. How was it what made John the Baptist such an effective witness at such a young age? Verse 15, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It's just what we see at the start of Acts. You will be filled with power from on high, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how you'll be my witnesses. So again, we can have real confidence Hardly anything in life at the moment can be said with much certainty, but the salvation that's in Jesus and the power that's available in his Holy Spirit is plenty enough to give us certain hope, even in 2021, even in lockdown. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we we so want to respond to your good news like Mary rather than Zechariah. We want to trust that your words will always be fulfilled, have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and will be again when he returns. And we just pray you would fill us with your spirit afresh. You would give us courage and confidence and certainty in your good news. And we pray that would open our mouths to share that good news with many. In Jesus' name. Amen.